Well, I invite you to Psalm number 72, Psalm number 72. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so the guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll give you one of those. And it is a gift, so keep that. Bring it back each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Psalm 72. Throughout this series in the book of Psalms, I've emphasized its intentional structure. The 150 individual psalms of poetry and song are divided into five distinct movements in a five-part cantata, with each having a purpose that moves toward a finale of praise in the final third of the entire book. And so we've titled this series, Psalms, a Cantata of Praise. Now those five movements in the cantata are from five individual collections, and we're looking to at select psalms from each of those. So you have books one through five, and I've reminded you of that for several of the weeks, and which of the psalms comprise each of the individual books. And Psalm 72, to which I've asked you to turn, is part of book or movement two. And I pointed out the last few weeks that one of the differences between the first and the second movement is that most of the psalms in 1 through 41 are about individual persons, and these in book 2 are about collective peoples. Both lament the prosperity of the wicked, but in book 1 it's wicked individuals, and in book 2 it's wicked nations. And you see that move from individuals to nations partly in the use, as I pointed out in the last few weeks, in a different name for God used in each. In the first book, the personal name Yahweh, translated in our English versions, Lord, in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is used primarily. And now in these Psalms, it's the Hebrew name Elohim, translated God, the generic title that's often used to refer to the true God of Israel, but is also the one that other nations would have used as well. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've covered Psalm 51, and now we're skipping to 72, which seems like we're ignoring a lot of material. But those in between deal with a common theme that culminates in this last psalm of book number two, and I can review those, those in-between psalms relatively quickly, and so I ask you to stay with me as I do. The early psalms in this movement, that is book two, speak of the wicked nations coming under the rule of the God of Israel. And now the remainder of the psalms in book two frequently reference the nations in general or spe specific nations, and they portray the God of Israel and his anointed one as defeating them all. Psalm 53 is identical to Psalm 14 back in book one except Psalm 53 uses the generic name for God, Elohim, rather than Israel's personal name, Yahweh, when it says in Psalm 53, for example, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Same as Psalm 14. Psalm 56 asks for God's justice to be done. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. And then the next one, Psalm 57, looks forward to a time when I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. And the following psalm acknowledges and delights that God judges the earth. 
And Psalm 59 in verse 8 uses the same language as Psalm number 2, which as we've seen along with Psalm 1 formed the introduction to the entire book of Psalms, with Psalm 2 focused on nations rather than individuals. And Psalm 2 and Psalm 59 both say, you laugh at them, Lord, you scoff at all of those nations. Psalm 60 recounts battles King David had with various peoples and nations. Psalm 61 expresses God's rule over more than just the nation Israel when it says, from the ends of the earth I call to you. Psalm 64 expresses David's hope that all people will fear. And Psalm 65, the whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. And then Psalms 66 through 70 look forward to the very last book, book number five, the last movement, when all the nations will be defeated and they will submit to Yahweh and his anointed as king over all. So Psalm 66, all the earth bows down to you. 67, may the nations be glad and sing for joy. 68, sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth, sing praise to the Lord. 69, let the heaven and the earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. And then Psalm 70, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And so movement two, that is book two, is a fleshing out of God's promise to his anointed one way back in Psalm number two. And I remind you of what it says, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And now this psalm. Psalm 72, the last one in book 2, points to God's future kingdom and God's future king. Now, this is important for us to see, dear friends, because we get so easily consumed with the here and now, and we forget that this life and its arrangement are not as God intended His world to be. Nations even the best of them, as we have been blessed to enjoy in our country, are not what God intended to be. That is why the Bible is a future-oriented book, pointing us to a time when things will be as they ought, when people will be as they ought. And as the last book in your Bible says, the book of Revelation, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. In the meantime, we are told to wait. So as we sang from Psalm 130, I will wait for you. We are told to wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are told, in the meantime, to pray for kings and all those in authorities. Why? So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And so, friends, far from the various versions of Christian nationalism, to which so many frightened Christians are turning, Far from the anxiety-inducing worry that so many of us have about the next election or what's going on in Lansing or in D.C., Scripture turns our attention to a better kingdom with the best king, a king who will reign forever. 
We're going to see that from Psalm 72. Let's bow now and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you that we are able to gather in your presence in a special way among the congregation of the redeemed. I thank you for these brothers and sisters and friends who are here. And we're thanking you because it is because of you. It is because of you that we are yours. It is because of you that providentially you have worked in our lives so that we can be here. And so we thank you for these sacred moments and we ask you to be able to to enable us to give our attention to what you say in your word about your future kingdom and king so that we will have a proper perspective this week and every moment of every day as we indeed wait for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. I say in the outline that you should have received when you came in today that the Bible points to a kingdom that is in fact coming. Now please notice at the very top of the psalm, before the the first verse, is the superscription. And this one, unlike those that we've seen previously, which said a psalm of David, this one says of Solomon. This is a psalm written by King David's son Solomon and is one of only two in the entire collection of 150 that's written by Solomon. The other one is Psalm 127. Now, many of you know that Solomon was David's successor as king of Israel. And ending this movement, this book, with a focus on the passing of the baton is important for a couple of reasons. One, David prays for this very thing in verse 18 in the penultimate psalm of this book. Now, I just like to say penultimate. It means uh, second to last. And that would be Psalm 71 the one just prior to this, and please notice verse 18 in Psalm 71. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. So that's one reason then, at the end of this book two, this movement two of the cantata, that we have David passing the baton of leadership, because he he prays for that very thing in Psalm 71. And secondly, David was asking that the Lord keep his promise to David that had been made decades earlier in what we call the Davidic covenant. We find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we read, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself, David, will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Movement two of the cantata is focused on the continued preservation of God's anointed through David's royal son, now Solomon, and the extension of that rule beyond the borders of Israel to all the nations of the earth. And since the descriptions here are about a righteous king, And they are are so grand and they go beyond any mere human king, including King Solomon. Then the ultimate referent is King Jesus, as we will see. Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser wrote, This psalm is a direct messianic prediction because it uses the future tense throughout. And because not even Solomon in all his glory 
could have fulfilled what is said here. So the Bible points to a kingdom yet to come. 700 years before Christ came to earth, the prophet Isaiah said of the coming Messiah, in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, I've highlighted that last phrase for you to keep it in in mind because we're going to go forward now 700 years. When God the Son has come to earth, Jesus Christ, and He applies this passage to Himself. And here's what the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, tells us. He went to Nazareth where He had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day He went into the synagogue as was His custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So, we didn't have full copies of the Bible at that point. The only parts of the Bible that had been written at this point when Jesus is walking the earth is the first part that we call the Old Testament. And that part did not have chapters and verses in it. So he's given a scroll, and he has to know where he wants to go. But he unrolls it, and he unrolls it to the place where it is written, what I just read for you from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops there. He rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Now, do you notice anything missing from the reading Jesus did from Isaiah 61? It's that phrase that I highlighted for you, that portion that says, the day of vengeance of our God, and that's intentionally so. And then the passage in Luke 4 goes on to say, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, all of what Jesus read was fulfilled at his first coming. But the day of vengeance will occur at his second coming. When he occurs to a, uh, returns to establish his kingdom as the ultimate son of David. And so the Bible is pointing us to this kingdom to come that will come when the Lord returns again. And the Bible points us to a kingdom that is, I say in the outline, righteous. Verse 1 says, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. These opening verses provide the character of this coming kingdom. It will be a kingdom where righteousness reigns. The word righteousness is used in each of the first three verses. And it means that God, through His King, does all things rightly and justly. And when that happens, verse 3 says, prosperity will result. That prosperity is spoken of later in this psalm, so we'll talk about it a bit then. So Solomon is in this lineage that points to the ultimate son of David, Jesus. And that ultimate son is needed... Because those who preceded him, 
including Solomon, did not live up to their stated aspirations. Here is Solomon asking for a righteous kingdom, a kingdom characterized by righteousness. And in Solomon's early years, righteousness was a characteristic of Solomon. You may recall that when he was installed as king of Israel, he asked God for wisdom so that he might rule justly. But over time, he turned away from the Lord. He followed other gods. He began to oppress the people with high rates of taxation to finance his building projects. And that's the way it goes with human rulers. Even if they begin well, the sin nature they have will manifest itself in some way at some point. And so we pray for our leaders, as 1 Timothy 2 tells us that we saw just a bit ago. We pray that they will rule righteously, but none has ever done so perfectly. And their failure is one reason that we look to another ruler, the one to come again, and of whom alone can we truly say what we see in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice, May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. You see, in the case of Solomon and every other merely human ruler, in his and their sin nature, he and they are not righteous. In the sin nature of the people that they rule, those people are not righteous. And the Bible says of all humanity, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so here is Solomon aspiring to this, but Solomon himself is not righteous, and the people that Solomon rules are not righteous. But Jesus had no sin nature, and so he could and he did live a perfect life of righteousness. And not only is he perfectly righteous, but his righteousness is counted to those who come to him to those who come to him in saving faith, believing who he is and what he has done. And by his spirit, he begins to change us into actually living out that righteousness. In the kingdom, we will do so perfectly in our glorified state so that you have a perfectly righteous king and you have his people who are perfectly righteous as well. Verse 4 says, May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy, may he crush the oppressor. Now, I just talked about a perfect kingdom with perfect people and all of that. And that will be the primary nature of the first phase of God's coming eternal kingdom. It will be populated by people like us who have been glorified either by being translated or through death with our glorified bodies. But apparently there are some who will afflict, and therefore there are some who are the afflicted, at least in this portion of the kingdom. And that you have the afflicted and the needy and those who oppress during this future kingdom suggests that Christ's coming kingdom is in fact in two phases. The first that is different than our present state, infinitely better in ways we'll see in a bit, but also not the absolute perfection of the eternal state. Some refer to it as the kingdom and the eternal state, or the intermediate kingdom and the eternal state. But whatever one calls it, 
It appears to be a future phase of God's kingdom plan. So theologian Wayne Grudem, with whom some of you are familiar, says, quote, all of this speaks of an age far different from the present age, but short of the eternal state in which there is no more sin or suffering. In that initial stage of the kingdom, the intermediate kingdom, there will be some people who go in in their natural bodies. We'll have this thing that's kind of weird for us to think about. You've got people in glorified bodies and then some people in their natural bodies. Now, you say, that's really weird. That's never happened. No, it actually did happen. You do remember Jesus was in his glorified body after he rose? And he talked to people who were still in their natural bodies? So this, this actually has happened and uh, I believe will happen in the future. And those people in their natural bodies will still have their sin nature and they'll have kids. And then those kids will do what's said here, but you will have the ultimate righteous king who will put out and put down all rebellion. So the Bible points to a kingdom that is coming and a kingdom that is righteous. And thirdly, this kingdom will merge into the eternal state. It will last forever. Verse 5, may he endure as long as the sun as long as the moon, through all generations. King David ruled for 40 years. His son Solomon ruled for another 40. But their reigns ended, as do those of all kings and presidents and prime ministers and dictators. Only Christ's rule will last forever. Charles Spurgeon wrote, we see on the shore of time the wrecks of the Caesars, the relics of the Mughals, and the last remnants of the Ottomans, Charlemagne, Maximilian, Napoleon, how they flit like shadows before us. They were and are not, but Jesus forever is. And one theme you see throughout this psalm is the blessings that occur due to the rule of righteousness. In verse 6, those blessings are compared to, verse 6, rain falling on a mown field like showers watering the earth. As one preacher has said, these images find parallels in several places. In Deuteronomy 32, where they refer to Moses teaching about God. Moses is teaching about God. In Job 29, where they refer to the way Job says his words were received by others before the beginning of his troubles. And in Proverbs 16, where they refer to the effect of the king's favor. And the most interesting and striking parallels is in David's own final instruction to Solomon that are recorded in 2 Samuel 23. David said this, When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. And so these are blessings that come from righteous rulership. And this is true of human rule. Righteousness brings blessing, just as Proverbs 14 says, says. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Yet among earthly rulers, that ideal is realized only from time to time, and even then only partially. In Jesus' case, it's an ideal that's fully realized and is everlasting. And so as the poet Sir Arthur Sullivan wrote, Ever and forever 
shall his name endure. Long as sons continue, it shall stand secure. And in him forever all men shall be blessed, and all nations hail him king of kings, confessed. The Bible points to a kingdom that's coming, a kingdom that is righteous, a kingdom that lasts forever, and, I say in your outline, it's universal. Verse 8, may he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. One preacher has said the river is the Euphrates, but this does not mean these words are meant to describe only the geographical territory contained in the earthly kingdom of Solomon, though at its fullest extent, it did extend from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean. These verses speak of all lands, the Euphrates being the farthest point the writer could think of, and to the east, Tarshish, the farthest city to the west, and Sheba and Seba, the farthest kingdoms to the south. In fact, so extensive is this kingdom that according to the psalmist, even, quote, the desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. And verse 11 says, all kings will bow down to him, all nations will serve him. So the rule of Jesus extends not only over all times from age to age, but embraces all places and all peoples. Colonialism throughout world history, has sought to establish world empires. Some have lasted for a period of time. Some have been able to keep portions of their empire in check for long periods of time. Those who come into great power like the Allied powers did a hundred years ago, after World War I and then after World War II. And you had, you had representatives of those powerful nations gathering together to divide up other lands in other places, the spoils, as it were. And so as a result of that, the Middle East was carved up. Countries were actually established by powerful people having maps and drawing lines on them and saying, in effect, these people are going to live here and these people are going to live there. 1948, the modern state of Israel was established. And there was a return to that area by Jews from all over the world, but that was done by forces that were able to, able to impose. And I'm not commenting on whether that's good or bad. I'm simply making the point that that's the way it goes in the human realm today. People seek to establish kingdoms. The powerful are able to divide up the, the spoils. But hear this, the earth does not belong to human kings. It belongs to King Jesus. And that is why Jesus is going to return and he's going to establish God's rule directly on his earth in the future. And so the Bible points to a kingdom that's coming. Its character is righteous. It lasts forever. It's universal and compassionate. Verse 12, For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help, he will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious 
is their blood in his sight. Now, all of that, I assume, as we read a psalm like 72, resonates with everyone here, that we love to see that happen. But all too often, we want to see it happen without recognizing the only means by which it can happen. George Herbert Walker Bush, when he ran for president, he said he wanted to have a kinder, some of you may remember this, a kinder and gentler nation. Well, that resonates with me. I want a kinder and gentler nation too. But here's the thing. In order to have a kinder and gentler nation, you've got to have kinder and gentler people. And George H.W. Bush, his aspirations being noble as they, as they were, has no power to change the nature of, of people. Only King Jesus can produce those kinds of people. And this is the fatal flaw with utopian forms of government among, among human beings, mere mortals. The idea that humanity can bring in a utopia, can bring in an age of Aquarius, a golden age, or bring in the kingdom in some way. I remember a long time ago, the late Francis Schaeffer. Some of you know that name. We have some of his books in our resource center. He was a theologian and a philosopher. He had a profound effect on me as I read his 23 books that he wrote over his, over his lifetime. And I saw him on television, the Phil Donahue show. Some of you remember Phil Donahue? And he was being grilled by Phil Donahue, who was a liberal. And uh, Schaefer was criticizing forms of government that assumed the goodness of people. If you establish, he said, a form of government that assumes people are good, it will fail because it's built upon a false premise. People are not good. And he made the case that systems like socialism and versions of socialism like communism are based upon that false assumption. That one of the reasons our system is the best system, imperfect though it is in the world, is because our founding fathers had a clear understanding of the sinfulness of people. And so they created a system with checks and balances so nobody had too much power. Because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so Francis Schaeffer said that the reason these fail is because they are utopian at their hearts. And that in turn, because of its failure, requires a forced conformity. The idea at the beginning is people are good and if we do these good things and we have a kinder and gentler sort of government, then people will respond accordingly. But because people are sinful, it doesn't work out that way. And not everybody pulls their weight. And so people have to be forced to do what we want them to do. And that's why they become oppressive. If you want to read on something like that, and it is an important issue, I think, then I refer you to Thomas Sowell. This is not a Christian book, so we don't have it in our resource center. But it's a great book. Thomas Sowell and a book called A Conflict of Visions conflict of visions, and it explains this kind of thing very clearly. And so the Bible points to a kingdom. It's coming. It's righteous. It lasts forever. It is universal. It's compassionate, and it's a kingdom that is blessed. Verse 15, long may he live. 
May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. And so this is a time that the Bible actually talks about in great detail. I'll talk about it for a bit here. Of prosperity on the earth, where all of these kinds of abundances and flourishing that are mentioned here actually come to fruition. They actually happen in a physical kingdom upon earth. If you were to, and I would recommend, if you're interested in this, I would recommend that you read through the 39 books of your Old Testament, and that you mark all of the places that the Bible talks about God's rule or God's coming kingdom. And then you make note of all of the characteristics of that coming kingdom. It will make you long for the time that Jesus returns and sets up that kingdom with that character, with these kinds of blessings. If you're to do that, here's the kind of thing that you will find you will find that that intermediate kingdom, what some call the prophetic kingdom, is going to have a spiritual and religious basis to it. You will find that that kingdom will have a prominent political aspect. And it's also going to have a robust socioeconomic and and welfare policy. Military conflict will cease. Military training, standing armies, and implements of war will be decommissioned, and universal peace will be enjoyed. True social justice will prevail. And the Old Testament teaches that that social justice will include the establishment of property and labor rights, the achievement of poverty relief through industry, the restoration of proper family values, including proper regard of young and old. It will include the resolution of ancient racial tensions, The reversal of the curse of Babel, restoring free communication. That prophetic kingdom, that intermediate kingdom, will also have physical policies and features to it. Environmental damage will be undone. Beneficial changes of climate will occur. Beneficial geographic and geological changes will occur. Meteorological changes will ensure that That timely and abundant rainfall will occur worldwide, even in traditionally barren places, leading to the elimination of famine. Fertility and productivity will abound. Animals will become docile. And I will like dogs at that point. (laughs) Disease and deformity will be eliminated. Long life will be the norm. Even ordinary hazards associated with human clumsiness will be reduced. Oh, do you long for such a time? In that list of things that the Old Testament teaches are coming in the coming kingdom are all of the things that we are trying to manufacture now with regard to our environment, our political environment, our cultural environment, our sociological environment, and all of them are promised by God when the king returns to establish his kingdom, the Lord Jesus. 
And after all of that, a doxology, a praise to the Lord, concludes not only Psalm 72, but concludes the second book or second movement of the cantata. Verse 18, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And then verse 20 says, this concludes the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. Now these are Psalms of David do appear after this in the the book of Psalms. But not Psalms of David that are specific, that give specific attention to David's life and David's rule. This is the end of that. He's passed the baton now on to Solomon. And that, by God's promise in the Davidic covenant, is going to continue until the Lord Jesus returns for a second time to establish his kingdom. And starting with next week, Psalm number 73. So for those of you that try to read ahead, we will do the next psalm next week, Psalm 73. And you see at the top of Psalm 73 that it's a psalm written by Asaph. We will see who Asaph is and the family from which he came and how it is that they were able to write these, these particular psalms. So in order for you to be part of the coming kingdom, where all of those marvelous things that are described in this psalm take place and for which human beings have aspired for millennia, in order for you to be part of that, you have to be rightly related to the king. And so that's why in the interim, from Jesus' first coming to his second coming, we invite people to be related to the king. Come to the king so that you will be part of his kingdom. How do you do that? You realize that you are part of the problem, and I am part of the problem that keeps that from happening. That God made humanity to rule for him in his world, but we have abdicated that responsibility. All humanity has done that. And so we are all sinners. We have failed to live up to the design that God originally made us. You recognize that the only solution for that is the Lord Jesus Christ. His person and His work. He is God come to earth so He does not have the sin nature that we have that causes all things to go adrift in our lives and in our world. And therefore He is able to do what we were not. Live the life that we were made to live. And he was qualified to die as our substitute, the death that we deserve. And so recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And that that death on the cross was acceptable to God the Father because it was preceded by that perfect life of righteousness. And you repent. Lord, I recognize this about myself. I recognize this about the world in which I live. And I personally repent. I'm going to go your way, not my way. I'm going to follow you, no longer my own designs. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Now, we're going to pray in just a moment. And When we do that, you're offered an opportunity to come to Christ and be part then of that coming kingdom that we will enjoy. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a Savior from there. And it's those of us who have come to Jesus now who wait for Him 
at a time then to be part of his future kingdom. Here's your take-home truth. Humanity has failed to rule the world for God. So the man Christ Jesus will return to rule his world. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for the blessing of being able to be in your presence, to open your book, and to be instructed therein. We thank you, Father, for telling us why you have placed humanity here, to rule your world on your behalf. You placed us in the garden. You gave us instructions, and we failed. Represented by the first Adam, we failed. And then throughout the first part of your revelation to humanity, you tell us that you are going to restore what has been lost by our failure. And you tell us that that restoration is going to come through an anointed one, a Messiah, the chosen one that we now know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you profoundly that the last Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. We thank you that he obeyed perfectly. And his perfect obedience is counted to us when we come to him so that we stand as righteous before you. And therefore, we are qualified to be part of this coming righteous kingdom that he is going to establish. And we say with God's people throughout the centuries, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to move on the hearts of any who came into this room without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Draw them to yourself. Make them part of the citizenship of heaven so that they will be part of the future kingdom. And we will give you the glory for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.